ride with me in my foul life. We're here. We're back. The foul life. I'm excited for this one. Talking to a good buddy of mine. I've hunted with him. I've had beers with him. I've cooked with him. I've uh, learned a lot from him. I think that he is probably responsible with, uh, you know, the story of these decoys that we call spinning wings and how he found it and how it came about in California and what Terry did with his business mind, him and his partners. And I always talk about the early days of Mojo and how it was almost a drug deal in the parking lots of certain places in Louisiana because duck hunters wanted these things so bad. They were wrapped in paper bags and being literally handed off through open windows of automobiles, just like a drive-by drug deal real quick. These are like the, the original duck hunters drugs was a spinning wing. And I don't know if there's been another tool in the game that has brought more memories of seeing ducks just light on top of your face. Now there are different ways to use them. There's a lot of rules that go with them. There's instruction that goes with them, ethics, morals, everything. But when done right and used right, I can't tell you how many thousands of mallard ducks I've seen over the top of them just putting on a show for us. So today's gear issue is decoys. We're starting off with the spinning wing decoys. Terry Denman, founder, owner of Mojo, Louisiana, Skip Knowles, editor-in-chief, Wildfowl Magazine. I mean, the season is upon us. I look at my Mojos and I get giddy. I have my remotes ready. They're charged. The way they're designed and built now, there's no excuse for not having a remote, not having a charged battery. Everything is so well designed. Mojo, Mr. Terry Denman, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Chad. You're my good friend. We've been together quite a bit. In fact, I would say that between you and Skip, y'all are probably my best two friends in the hunting world, if you let me throw people like Ramsey Russell in there right after you, or Steve Vickers, or Rob Reynolds, or some of those guys. Right under the bus of Ramsey right now. <laughs> now, I did steal a quote. Chad, you know, I've been, I've been prone to stealing a quote here and there. Um, what was it, the Waterfowler's Bible? Uh, the giant deer shoot. Well, I stole one from Henry, but I gave him full attribution in my last editor letter in the uh, September wildfowl about how we've all felt like we had spent the last year with our head under a pillow, you know, and, and not being able to see the people we love and do all the things we love though. Though this year got better for me. I don't know about y'all right from the very start of January and we started hunting more again, but uh, the point was Ramsey, uh, Mr. Superman, man, Ramsey Russell. He, uh, he said, you know what, when we finally get to bust loose again and do what we do and go to Canada with Terry Denman and, and just do the things we love, it's going to be the roaring 2020s, which is so cool because it's 2021. It'll be the roaring 20s all over again. And I, I don't know. I'm getting that vibe. No, wasn't, wasn't that the Great Depression, though, Skip? No, that, that's what preceded the Great Depression. Oh, well, I thought the Depression was in the 20s, too. No, it was the 30s, young snapper. <laughs> young whippersnapper um i've always i've always thought of, you know of innovation when i think mojo and terry and what he means to the industry and rest in peace good brother mike morgan um that we lost 
not too long ago. Uh, my time spent on the road with Terry and Mike has been invaluable. My time at Cajun restaurants or Louisiana culinary, eating with them and learning from them has been invaluable. Sitting in the Mojo headquarters and office has been invaluable. And I, it never ceases to amaze me, Skip Knowles, that you open up the 2021 giant gear issue and look at what you freaking see. Coots. Terry Denman is bringing coot like Justin Timberlake brought sexy back. I know there's coot decoys out there, but he's got Rippler coots, confidence decoys. We're going to use them for confidence decoys. Those boys that we talked to uh, on the on the last podcast, Kyle Brisson and Gator Tail guys, they think those are real decoys to kill birds to eat. <laughs> yeah, they they uh, they they killed their limit one day. Terry was telling us about the best gumbo he ever made was with coots this last season. Very memorable coot shoot, but that you open up the front inside cover in the first page. You got the coots on one side, and then you come over here, and you have the most advanced spinning wing decoy in the world just got better. Elite series, now remote ready. There's so much. I got to ask you, Terry, your, your background is in engineering. Is in a type A personality, an entrepreneurial spirit that just keeps you motivated at this stage in your professional career? How do you keep coming up with ideas? I know you have Chuck, and I know you have Marty. I know you have a great team there with Stevie and everybody. But I've got to guess that your brain and your mind is the is the thinking that you probably don't sleep very well, or you're up early and you don't go back to sleep. How are you always thinking of stuff like this, Terry? I can't really tell you. I remember one time Skip asked me, he said, where do you come up with all this stuff? And I said, I wake up in the middle of the night, Skip, and it's come to me for something. So... You know, for whatever I've done, I, 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 you guys have been around me. I don't take a whole lot of credit for much I've done, but well, for whatever I might have done, it, it's some kind of God-given talent. It's not anything that I've actually done myself. But, you know, if you think about it, because I am, you know, I have come out of the engineering community. That's what I've done my whole life. Uh, it's basically identifying a need and see if you can feel it. That's really about the only way I look at it. You know, what can you do to get better? Now, I have a I have a saying in most everything that I do is that, you know, the world progresses so fast today that what was great tomorrow yesterday is not good today. And what's good today will not be great tomorrow. So you have to keep it, you have to keep everything moving along. And so, you know, I really, that's about the only answer I can give you on that, uh, Chad. I, I really don't know, except I'm always looking for a boy. And if you, uh, you two guys know this very, very well, and most of the people that's listening to us will know this very well. If you look at any kind of decoy spread, I don't care whose decoy spread it is, if it's mine, yours, Skip's, you, you know, the big guys, uh, you know, whatever, it don't look anything like a live set of decoys. We're always taking video footage of live sets of decoys somewhere, and we'll put it on social media or something and say something like, is this what your decoy spread looks like? And it don't, you know. And so, so you're talking about live ducks looking like live I'm ducks. About live ducks. We we're so far away from having a decoy spread that uh, uh, simulates live ducks that there's a lot of room for uh, innovation and improvements. Oh, I could not agree more. But let me ask you this, Mr. Terry Demon. Do you think that through innovation and technology that we have breeded a smarter animal. Have we bred as hunters? Because we are the most intimate with wildlife, in my opinion. I know there's these guys that have documentaries on feeding bears or the occasional person that's out there, you know, with the owls and bird watchers and they and more power to them. But hunters are very intimate with the resource and the animal. 
because of our research and your wherewithal in knowing the species, are you responsible for breeding a smarter duck? I think absolutely. I think the more that we hunt them, the smarter they're going to get. And the smarter they're going to get, the smarter we have to get. And I don't think that there's a, uh, there's a solution to that. You know, if you go back a hundred years and even I'm not old enough to go back a hundred years and, uh, and I know you and Skip are not, you know, ducks were easier to kill back then because they weren't being hunted very hard. And that's true of not just ducks, it's true of almost any game, you know, white-tailed deer. It's the same way, you know, you hunt them every day, they get smarter and they get smarter. Um, and so I think that's something that we've got to live with. And and there there's probably a fine line in there somewhere between us making them smarter than they would have been had we just hunted them absent whatever innovative process that we're talking about. But what would happen then was our success rate would just keep going down. And as our success rate would keep going down, we would lose more hunters or we would be able to gain uh, uh, fewer new hunters into the system. And if there's anything that we need, you know, it's uh, it's new hunters, it's people to join in our sport. Because, look, guys, uh, you know, last statistics are uh, uh, hunting lice in the United States are right bumping around 5% of the population. So they go down much below that. We become irrelevant. You know, we're not a factor. We're not a factor in politics. We're not a factor in the economy. We're not a factor in anything. So we have to keep our hundred, uh, hundred, uh, hunters numbers up. And I think that one way that we do that is to allow them to be successful. And if they're successful, then they'll stick with it. If they're not, they'll get frustrated and leave. Tell us, oh, sorry, Skip, go ahead. Uh, Oh, I just wanted to mention one of the things, and I know you know this, Chad, that I admire so much about Terry, just to build on what he just said, is that he became a big shot wildlife commissioner, and he's given charity golf tournaments and fed hundreds of people crawfish, influencing people in the right directions to help the outdoors. But um, he became a commissioner on the wildlife board in Louisiana, and at a time when everyone was trying to say, you can't do this. What about these motion decoys? Um, what can we restrict next to try and limit public pressure, pressure on birds and all this kind of thing? Terry, you're going to have to straighten out this sordid tale that I'm probably telling horribly. But like, for instance, uh, and Terry said, look, we got to tell people what they can do to be successful if we want to recruit them in the sport, not what they can't do. We need to enable, not disable future generations of hunters because an expert like Terry Denner, Chad Belding might still be able to go out and shoot enough ducks to have some fun as things become more restricted, but that your neophytes aren't, they're just going to struggle and then go back to their phones and video games and everything else. And one example was um, like in Colorado and Pennsylvania and other States, they super restrict black powder. We can't use even a non-magnifying scope on a muzzleloader here in Colorado. (laughs) And Terry's like, why should we limit it to muzzleloaders? We should just, um, what I'm trying to say is he legalized the use of straight wall cartridges during a muzzleloader season. He broadened the ability of people to go out and be successful in that part of the sport. And that's been his approach from the start is helping people be successful, even with some of his wilder inventions like the Spoonzilla. Terry, when you start thinking about what Skip said and what you alluded to, here's the deal. Duck hunting has got to be one of the hardest to not just be successful in, but to stay legal 
and ethical. Not only do you have shooting hours, and not only do you have gauges and shotgunning and leads and targets, and then you have to go with limits, and you can only kill this many redheads or this many hen mallards and this many canvas backs. And but if you go to Arkansas, you can kill four green heads, but in Nevada, you can kill seven. But then on top of that, how do you identify these birds through flight or through sitting on water and everything like that? When when it comes down to it, Mister Terry. Duck hunters have to learn a lot of different moving pieces and puzzles to this game. And confidence should kind of be natural to where getting that confidence through success should be one of the easier parts that come, right? Uh, Absolutely. I think as far as a complication factor, which is basically what you were referring to there, I think it's the most complicated uh, uh, sport that we have in, in hunting. Now, a lot of sports are more physically demanding, you know, some of the mule deer hunts, sheep hunts, some of the mountain stuff, elk, whatever, they're more physically demanding and harder to do, but there's no other outdoor hunting sport that I know of that's as complicated uh, as duck hunting. And and, and, and it seems to me that you you just have to learn more. It takes longer to become accomplished at a duck hunter than it would, say, at a well, I'm not going to name one because all the people jump on me because they're all they're all hard to do. But, you know, it, it is very complicated to do because start with, you know, duck, ducks, uh, uh, unlike, uh, say, white-tailed deer, elk, something like that, they're extremely migratory. I know deer migrate, but they don't migrate from from Alaska to South America in two or three months, you know. The, the point being, they're here today, gone tomorrow, you know, and you have to deal with that aspect of it. You have to deal with the aspect of it that, as these ducks move down the flyway, uh, they become easier to kill when they arrive at any one given location, but only for two or three or four days. And then they become harder to kill. And then it's really, really tough until you can get a front or some other movement that brings some more ducks in. And so, you know, I've known people that's, um, you know, hunted for quite a few years and we start talking about that particular subject there and they say, you know, I never thought about it like that. So it's obvious to them, but they just never thought about it. You know, the, uh, the duck's easier to kill the first two or three days. It's just arrived at a new location. So it is, it is very complicated. And, and that issue of duck identification is a big is a big deal. And it's, it's hard to do. You know, there's people sell apps for your phone now that have put all these ducks on there so you can uh, – Check them in the field. I've never tried that. That you, you couldn't do it on the wing by any means. But if they were sitting on the water, maybe you could uh, you could identify them. But you know, it's extremely difficult to live within all these rules and regulations, and especially the especially the limit. You know, most, most places in the lower Mississippi Flyway have a two mallard hen limit. You kill four mallards out of six ducks, but only two of them can be hens. And uh, if you hadn't been hunting a long time, and it's hard to identify these ducks in the air, like when they just come, you know, zooming in to land in your decoy, it's hard to separate them. One of the best stories, and I want to go, I want to go into more of this success and confidence, Mr. Terry and Skip is, I wonder like through your travels, through your speaking engagements, through your trade shows, through your consumer shows, through your hunts, your website, your direct messaging, how much the positive outweighs the negative how many success stories has a dad said my son got to see Mallard do this and the teal ate up the little mojo teal and the pigeons did this and i mean the predator did this the coyote the bobcat it's it's unanimous i guarantee it but one of the stories i want you that i want to tell you that i witnessed was somebody that was pretty prolific in the industry 
we're in a dry cornfield situation and filming mojos are out in front and the ducks are eating it up like it's their job well this guy says hey we can do this without them we don't we don't need them let's do it without them so we take them out okay well there's that mindset mojos we don't need them they're unethical whatever it is i'm like okay take them out we don't see a duck put them back up but put them behind us i don't want the cameras to see them okay we'll put them behind us cameras can't get them because all the ducks are landing on the mojos behind us and we can't shoot them well, put them out in front of us get them back out there get them oh we got to get them done da, 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 da. and i'm like wait a minute like why are we so why do we hide the fact that we like mcdonald's food is it bad that i say i like a big mac and the french fries and the salt on them why do we have to be closet mcdonald eaters why can't we why do we have to be closet mojo guys i know so many people that have so many success stories over mojos but also like to talk out the other end of their face and say oh you know we like to be old school and we don't really need that there is a point to my story here. These things have provided so many ducks in your face. And when Mr. Terry says the identification part of this, and I also mentioned it, it's so difficult. It becomes easier with the tools that get the ducks closer, giving us the ability to pick out things like their spectrums or their wing, you know, their wing colors on their wings or their heads or their beaks or their feet, letting us not shoot over our limits in gadwalls or mallards or hens or canvas backs. It blew my mind that this guy literally would have done anything to make people think he d he's killing mallards without mojos that to me is a weird phenomenon with the mojo does my story make sense terry absolutely it makes sense and we hear we hear both sides of that uh we we get a lot of compliments people call us up you know tell us you know the success that they had had with our various products uh and then you always got the uh you know the other side that's going to jump in and say you don't need them. They're not ethical or whatever. They want to beat up on the hunters that do use them, you know, which brings up a, a, a whole new uh, kind of subject that I put in here. You know, one of the biggest problems we got in hunting now is the hunters all want to beat up on the other hunters because they don't use the same kind of equipment that they use. They don't use a, you know, they don't use the same kind of gun or they use a gun instead of a bow. And, you know, that's doing irreparable harm to hunting in, in general. I wish there was something we could do to stop that, but there's always going to be a few of those, but, at Mojo, we we don't we listen to them. We listen to everybody. If you want to offer some kind of information to Mojo, we're gonna pick up on the information. But on the other hand, we say, well, there are just gonna be so many naysayers, and there's not anything you can you can really do about that. And an interesting point, uh, Chad and Skip, in that is that you know we've all watched where equipment has come in the last um, let's say 30 years, 25 years, 20 years, whatever you want to do, in the form of better guns, better ammo, better clothes, better waders, better boots, you know, better uh, uh, transportation. Look how much the change in transportation has changed duck hunting. You can now easily get to places that before you couldn't get to at all. And all that has helped uh, helped uh, 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 duck hunting, hunting in general, uh, but yep, duck hunting especially, but they want to just pick out the spinning wing decoy to beat up on them. They don't want to beat up on these, on these other things. So, you know, who knows? That's, maybe that's a good double-edged sword. You know, we get some good and some bad out of it. But it's, but it's such a point that needs to be taken into consideration of you 
think this is unethical, but we're shooting ammo that goes this many feet per second out of a gun that will not jam anymore. And you could hold it, you could freeze it in, in, in frozen water for 80, 80 days and it'll come out shooting no problem with no rust on it. We can elevate ourselves in a tree stand with a bow that shoots 485 feet a second and we could kill a whitetail with a bow because they don't look up because there's no, pr- I mean, there's so much innovation and advancement in everything that we do. It just blows my mind that it's like things that are built in the weeds Louisiana and companies out of Louisiana, the, the surface drive motors and the mojo are the ones that are the most picked on in duck hunting when they are making duck hunting better for so many people, acts accessible wise and 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 memory wise with how ducks and, and again. I'm not saying, Mr. Terry or Skip, that you put your mojo out there and every duck that flies off the roost that morning is going to land in your lap. There's ways to do this. And that's where I want to go next, Mr. Terry, is that we have to have an ideology and a mindset when using decoys like this mixed with our static decoys, our blocks, our floating decoys, our jerk rigs, whatever we choose to use. I want to go into just a couple hints that you and I have touched on before of decoy placements, decoy placement when it comes to the spinning wing. And I also want you to touch on levels of depth perception and things that you've seen through your studies and your travels and different hunting situations. Is it okay to use a taller pool? Do we want the swimmer and the floater on the water? Do we want to mix them? Do ducks act different from what you've seen in all of your hunting experience? Where do we place the decoy? And you can start at the beginning of the season and move to the end. But I just want a couple hints for our listeners. How do we use a spinning wing decoy? Well, I'm going to start, Chad, with my first rule. And my first rule is always let the ducks tell you what you need to do. Now, uh, if you go out and start a hunt, say, you're out before daylight setting up, then uh, the, the more experience that you get at duck hunting, the better you're going to be at making the best guess the first time around. But, you know, as the ducks start flying and you start trying to work them, uh, you, uh, you, we, we, we will all notice that most of them going to do the same thing over and over again. And so you kind of got to watch that and let the, let the ducks tell you what they want to do. Because um, if ducks are not pressured, it's a, it's a proven fact that they will most of the time just come over and land pretty close to a spinning wing decoy. However, as they get more and more pressured, they learn. I mean, if they didn't learn, we'd wipe them out. You know, they learned that uh, spinning wing decoy can cause them harm. And, uh, you know, that's the other side of that uh, uh, the two-edged sword. Uh, they're real good, but on the other hand, the ducks learn from them real, real easily. And so when that happens, you got to you got to start being a little more innovative. you got to move them out of, out of the way. If they don't want to land right on top of them and you put them right in your killing hole to start with, which is the ideal situation is what we all really want to do, then you got to move them out of the killing hole to let the ducks get into the killing hole. And uh, and then as the season gets longer and you have uh, more pressured ducks, then you have to keep moving it uh, moving it away from it. You know, a good general rule is if they don't like to land within about 50 yards from a spinning wing decoy, we'll move the thing at least 50 yards from where you want it to land. You know, that's 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 pretty common sense. Uh, but uh, uh, you just got to kind of let the ducks tell you what they want to do. I like to have my my spinning wing decoy as close to the water as I can. And, and, and that is one of two main reasons that I like those little floater decoys. One, the wings are right down on the water. 
and you're really getting four wings out of it because you're getting the two that's on the decoy and the two that's reflected in the water right under it. Um, uh, but, you know, sometimes they don't want them right on the water. So, you know, a typical spinning wing decoy is sold with about a four-foot pole, six-foot pole that'd be four foot above the water. And that's a typical placement. And oftentimes that's all you need. That works great. But there are times when if you will put it up in the air eight or ten feet, they really like it up there when they don't like it on the water. And uh, I've been trying to figure out exactly why that is, and I, I haven't I haven't done that yet. I'm starting to get a few ideas, but I haven't figured it out yet. And so you just have to kind of watch uh, uh, what the ducks will tell you to do. For instance, when you know, early blue wing till season is coming up in, what, uh, six weeks, middle of September, first of September, middle of September. Uh, and, and so we always start out our duck spread, uh, you know, with a little a little round circle of blue wing tail decoys on the left, a little round circle on the right, as much water movement motion as we can put in there because in that time of the year, daylight where we live, there's no wind. And then we'll put one or two on a on a extension pole. We make a extension pole that comes in um, a three four foot sections. So. It will. Uh, it it can be four feet, uh, eight eight feet or twelve foot. We'll put a couple up on that high pole, and then we'll watch the first group of ducks, and see what they do. If they like that, we keep after it. If they kind of shy away from that, those uh, high decoys up there, we'll either lower them or do whatever needs to be. Because sometimes they like a lot of spinning wing decoys. You know, six or eight or ten or twelve. Sometimes they don't, and uh, we know that on a real cloudy day especially a cloudy day with a low ceiling, uh, well, they don't like that much flash. I don't know what's happening, but that flash is bouncing off the top, off the bottom of those clouds some kind of way, and it's somehow uh, confusing the ducks. And, uh, uh, you know, there are days, I know, Chad, you've been there, that when you blow your call, you can hear that sound skipping off the bottom of the clouds off the, going down through there. You know, that's the days that they don't like a lot of flash because something in all that, it scared them. That call scares them that day. Yeah, you know, you can only blow very, very softly on a day like that, uh, if at all. And so you just watch the, you just watch the birds. And I oftentimes say to people, well, just watch their body language, watch their face. And they say, you can't see a duck's face when he's going in landing. I said, but you can if you watch it. Maybe you can't see his eyes from way out there, but you can see his his expression. You can see if he's eager to come in, if he's suspicious, if he likes it, or he just he's attracted to it and he's thinking about it. You can kind of tell all that from ducks when they land if you watch them close enough. And that's really how you're going to get better at decoying. Now, as I said in the beginning, the, 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 the longer you do it and the more experience you, you, you get, the faster you're going to be able to adjust your decoy spread. The closer you're going to be able to set it up to the correct setup to begin with. But if you're brand new, just go out there and, you know, do, do whatever you think's best at the time. Watch the ducks. And uh, uh, before daylight, before, before good light, not before daylight, before good light, still legal shooting time, you know, they'll fly around kind of crazy. So you don't get a lot of information from those ducks. But once it gets light and they settle down and they start coming in patterns, they'll all do just about the same thing for any one given species of ducks. Watch them and they'll tell you a whole lot about what you need to do to your decoy spread. I love that. And Skip, if you don't have a question, um, Skip, if you don't have a question for Mr. Terry, um, do you? Because I, I don't want to cut you off. I was on mute there for a second. But I, I have something that I, I'd like to ask him um, with his history 
in the duck. I like to learn. I like to hear. Our friend Tony Vandermore told us he's already seeing teal in early. It's August second in uh, Louisiana. I'd like to know when you're when he's done with your question. And Terry can handle about ten questions at once. You can hear how analytical and crazy his mind is. Let's get back to um, talking about your teal property, Terry. Too when uh, when Chad's done. Yeah, no, go ahead, Terry. Like talk about teal and your teal property and 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 how this has kind of become the kickoff. This is the kickoff to the the season in the southern part of the United States, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas. There's teal seasons in other parts of the country. The early Canada goose seasons up in the Dakotas and Minnesota, Iowa. Um, What does it mean, Terry, at your level of the game? Do you still deal with the mosquitoes in the heat? Do you still look forward to the early season? You mentioned Steve Biggers. I have not met the man personally, but you talk about a reputation. I mean, if Terry Denman's going there every year, it must be good. Uh, Do you still get fired up for the teal season, Terry? Well, absolutely. Uh, uh, Down south, uh, especially, you know, the, the big deal has always been, continues to be the opening of dove season. Now, dove season going to open uh, down in the south. Uh, uh, by the federal framework, you can open it on September the 1st. But, you know, uh, Texas opens theirs on September the 1st. Louisiana and most of these other states going to always open on a Saturday to let more people go hunting. So it's going to open the first uh, Saturday in September. And uh, that was a – and more people hunt doves – uh, then than any other species because that's their first time to get out in the field. Uh, and, and so it's just, it, and it's an easy sport. It's, you can take your kids or your wife, your girlfriend, your whoever you want to, you can take them on an easy hunt for dove hunt. Well, when they started giving us a early blue wing teal season, it has most of those same characteristics because it just comes a week or two later after, after uh, dove season does down here. But the difference is it's duck. You know, duck gets in your blood a lot more than dove gets in your blood. There are some dedicated dove hunters I've crossed paths with in my life, but most of the time people are just going dove hunting because it's the only season open. It's the first one. They can get out in the field and, and, and do some shooting and do some hunting, work their dog, you know, do things like that. So, but it's not duck. So here comes early blue wing teal season. As uh, most of us would know, teal uh, migrate through the lower 48 states uh, mostly in the month of September. They, they'll start in August, but by the end of September, they would have been out of the continental United States up until the warmer uh, weather of the last uh, four, five, six, seven years. You know, uh, Now, you, you know, they'll be uh, blue-winged teal in uh, late September in Alberta, Canada. I know our guy up there has told us that we still got blue-winged teal up here, but it wasn't supposed to be that way. So, uh, you know, based on the, how the weather was some years ago, they give us this early uh, blue wing teal season, and a lot of blue wing teal come through our country. Um, they base the season actually off the off the you know, bird count. If there's, uh, I believe, four and a half million teal in the count, you'll get 16 days. If there's less than four and a half million, you'll get nine days. So uh, we we've had 16 days for years. And originally, you only had uh, you you could only kill four blue wing teal. A few years ago, they raised that to six. So that's equal to our our normal limit for what we call big ducks. You know, we have two seasons. We have blue-winged teal and we have big duck season. Big ducks would be the regular duck season. You know, it would be, um, you know, mallards, pintails, gadwalls, and on down through the, down through the teal. So uh, it's, it's an opportunity to, to, to get out and hunt ducks first. And it's become a, it's become a tradition, uh, somewhat like the dove hunting has become. 
And um, it is a it, it is a feast or famine that would appeal are moving through, they'll come to a place, they might not stay there but a day, a night, and move on, or they might stay in one place for two or three days and move on, but, you know, it's not going to be the same every day. You can go to a good teal place and uh, and uh, see hardly any teal, if any teal, for a day or two, go down the next day to everywhere. So it's, it's not real consistent by the nature of the fact that they're migrating uh, through the United States, except they stage at Steve Bigger's place in El Campo, Texas. Uh, it's just one of those places where it's ideal habitat. They grow lots of rice there. And uh, the, the weather has um, uh, uh, has changed over the years to where they can grow a second crop of rice, second growth rice, they call it. By They cut the first crop off and they just flood the field again and it'll grow the second crop. And then they'll cut it off and it'll be blue wing teal season. So they have so much ideal habitat there that blue wing teal just kind of stays there for a long uh, period of time. And uh, in the end, most of them is going to go on into Mexico and even further south. Um, there's some fantastic blue wing teal hunts in uh, Nicaragua. So they migrate all the way down to Nicaragua. But uh, it's uh, I, to tell you the truth about it, I like it just about as much as I like the big season, not counting mallards okay you got to have mallards but if you, we don't have mallards that time of year but uh uh it, it's a fun shoot now it's a fun shoot and nothing eats any better than teal does except maybe for a wood duck how's your property looking it's uh you know skip um i can't tell you why but the, the backwater is uh you know the one the mississippi river floods all the other rivers that all back spills out in these overflow areas, which is most of our, our farm is a overflow area. Those kind of areas are really what attracts all the ducks. Uh, it's getting to where the backwater stays up a little later every year. And here we are on the, what, what is it, uh, in, in early August, it's still raining every day in Louisiana, every day. And, uh, and so we haven't done a lot of work on our, on our field, but I was down there Saturday for the first time in quite some time, it just rained for about three days in a row, afternoon thunderstorms. It was too wet to work, but uh, it's looking good. It's growing, uh, you know, we manage moist soil plants on that on that farm. And that's something I've been studying for probably uh, 15 years. And that in, in this particular farm that you're talking about, it's uh, it grows more soil plants profusely. And uh, uh, you don't have to plant anything. Nature's planting them for you. You just have to manage them to make the right ones grow. And, uh, and of course, the management of it is uh, is the timing of your drawdown. And then it, the timing of the drawdown determines which more soil plant will grow. And so you have to draw it down at the right time to make the correct more soil plant grow. And after that, you got to keep the noxious stuff out of it. So, you know, we, we disc, burn, uh, spray, you know, do things like that to, 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 to enhance the habitat of it. And uh, the more soil plants, the, the seed that's in more soil plants, uh, unlike a, a domestic seed of some kind, it will last in the water all year. The water doesn't hurt it. So if it gets wet, it doesn't bother it as it would, a, say, a soybean or something like that. You submerge the soybean, it burns the soybean, but it doesn't bother these. And it grows so thickly that it's a, it's a great invertebrate. Uh, 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 habitat and you know invertebrates are an extremely important food source for ducks that um, uh, that we don't give enough credit to we don't tell the people we don't educate the people good enough about 
uh, how much they need uh, in vertebrates because they are extremely high protein uh, source of food for for ducks. You seen one yet? Uh, blue wing kill? Yeah. No, I didn't. You know, I thought I might would. I would, but but it was overrun with wading birds of all kinds. You know, I see people go to places just to watch wading birds. You know, and uh, there's enough wading birds that I could have been selling. Uh, I could have been selling tours on <laughs> Saturday. You know, but it happens like that when the backwater goes off and it exposes these large mud flats. Those wading birds love those mud flats. On another note, Mr. Terry Demon, where is when did the explosion of Americans going north of the border happen? Because I don't remember growing up like my dad or anybody in in our hunting circle saying, "Hey, we're going to Canada in September." It just doesn't seem like it was going on in the '80s or even when I was in high school. My my buddy, I didn't really duck hunt them, but my buddies that did, I don't ever remember anybody going. Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Manitoba, anywhere up there to chase ducks and geese. And the reason I ask is two-part question is when did it happen? And, you know, the dry field situation is very powerful with your product. Peas up there, grains up there. You come down here and you get in corn. It's unbelievable. Even flooded rice. But the dry field is pretty special. Do you think uh, it would happen? Do you think it would happen without mojos? Does this phenomenon of dry field hunting? I know that you can kill mallards, brown mallards, in September in a goose spread. I get it, you can. But to get them in late September and mid October in those big, big flocks, I don't know if you could do it without a mojo. When did it start? And is mojo responsible for a lot of this? Uh, you, you know, obviously, people have been going to Canada for many, many years you know, to hunt ducks and other things too. But you're exactly right. I don't know if I can put a date on it for you, Chad. But you know, it it could have been associated with mojo. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I certainly wouldn't claim that would be true. You know, I know it's associated with a better economy, more people being knowledgeable about what you can achieve up there, and um, the, the the advent of um, uh, mass air, air travel. Uh, I know some people from years ago that would go up there. They would drive up there from Louisiana. You know, and that's pretty tough. The average person just can't, it, it doesn't have enough time to go do that. So I, I think that uh, air travel probably had about as much up to do with it as anything. But, you know, you know who Rod Reynolds is. That's our buddy that we hunt with in Alberta. And we've been doing it for I don't know how many years now. And he's uh, a lot of good outfitters in Alberta, but uh, he's, he's really one of the very best one of them. And, he puts out um, he puts out um, a, a large spread of uh, full body goose decoys and four mojos, and he'll tell you says the only duck decoy I use is, is a mojo, but he's got out you know a couple hundred full body geese decoys too. But they will come to it because I have been there on a number of occasions, and I know Skip has, and I'm sure that you have when we would turn the mojos off because the geese were coming. And we forget to turn them back on. Now, this was before we had as handy uh, remote controls as we have now. And sometimes we were physically turning them off. And so we'd get up and physically turn them off to mojos and, you know, work the geese and shoot the geese. And then we'd forget to go out and turn the decoys on. And about 10 or 15 minutes, somebody say, well, I hadn't seen the ducks. And no, we forgot to turn the mojos back on. You go turn the mojos on and they will, you know, and they'll start coming to it. Um, uh, I think the difference in that is naturally those people up there scout 
and they go set up where, where the scouting reports have shown that a lot of ducks are working that location. So you know you're going to get some ducks one way or the other if things work out according to the scouting plan. But I think what the mojos had at that time, uh, uh, Chad, is long-range attraction. And, uh, uh, you know, that's a, that's a interesting and confusing thing about spinning wing decoys because we did a horrible job in the early beginnings of spinning wing decoys and educating people as to what their highest and best use was, which is long-range attraction. But in the early days, since the ducks wanted to come over and land right on top of them, people started thinking of them as finishing devices. And so then when the ducks started trying to catch on to them a little bit, but it, they didn't want to land right on top of them, but it never affected their long-range attraction any. So if you've got one, then you're going to attract ducks from a long distance, even if you can't put it in front of you and use it as a finishing device. So in those dry fields of Canada, of Alberta, you know, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, those places like that, you know, they're just ducks flying in bands everywhere up there going to different fields. And and there, I don't think there's any doubt that, that you pick up ducks by the use of a spinning wing decoy they didn't feed, feed in that field yesterday. It wasn't there when the scout got there. They just happened to see the spinning wing decoys, and they swung by to take a look at them. How far, Terry? I'm sorry, Chad, I got interrupted. But how far do you feel like that they can see them? I mean, you know, with uh, Chad Belling's calling ability, you can sometimes break their necks at 1,000 yards. But uh, how far do you feel like uh, the ducks can see a spinning wing decoy? Yeah. Because a lot of people don't understand that long-range attraction. They think it's just another decoy, and it's not that way at all. No, it, it it's it's in miles. It's not in yards. It's in miles, and it's going to depend a good bit on the sky condition. The, you know, spinning wing decoy has to turn a certain speed. If you let it get below that speed, then it quits making that strobe or that flash, and then it doesn't provide long-range attraction. But uh, in the early years, we had a crop duster friend of ours that we knew called us up and said he could see one from eight miles. He knew where he was. Duster. He knew where the mojo was. He, he said it was eight miles away. Now, you know, that's not a duck. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a human, but, uh, and it's kind of hard to relate how ducks see to how humans see, but it's in miles. I, I can promise you that they can sit for miles. You know, if you, if you, if you well, get back from a spinning wing decoy, at least a quarter of a mile is a kind of a round figure to use. You know, you can't see the wings turning. It's not a motion decoy. It's a mistake to call them a motion decoy. You just see the flash the same as you would if it was a strobe light. And um, uh, uh, and it, it, it's just totally, it's in a totally separate category than a motion device is, than a motion decoy is. Do you think that it has something to do with the way ducks move faster or the way they land why don't a, why doesn't a Canada goose eat it up? Because with flagging, you're doing the motion of back flapping in the decoy, or a goose getting up on his on his on his hind legs, you know, and just kind of flapping or scaring another goose out of his food source or away from his girlfriend. You you start thinking about looking at mallards on water from a long ways away. You can see that constant flash, tails moving, dipping up and down, eating with their head under the water. You see it a lot in a dry field situation. The ducks are coming and they work more horizontal. They do a lot of false runs where over water, they work more vertical down onto a decoy spread, in my opinion. Over dry land, Mr. Terry, they're working more horizontal, false run. They'll do it again. Then they'll approach and try to get their landing right. 
What is it about that you think in your studies that a candidate goose depth perception or vision or whatever it is, why do you have to turn the mojo off to attract flocks of Canada geese? And I'm not saying they won't eat it up because I've seen some do it, but not many. Yeah, we killed them. We killed them over mojos when the mojos were still running, but it's pretty rare. Most of them is going to shy away from it. Uh, of course, ge- geese do not beat their wings fast enough to produce that strobe. So they can they can look at that strobe and tell that it's a duck. Now, I can't tell you why they don't want to come over and land with the ducks, because if they're just out there without a spinning wing decoy, you see geese and ducks landing in the same place. So, um, but but o- overall, I think they kind of try to say separate it from one another. But but geese do not produce that strobe because they don't beat their wings fast enough. Oh, so they're just not they're just not used to seeing it. Yeah, does it scare? Yeah, it's it? not other geese. It, it, it's not other geese. So they're looking for other geese to land in. You know, so. that, that raises, it's not. That raises the question of flock of flickers, though, because they make a a nice flashing motion you can see from a long ways off, and and geese don't seem to mind them as much. Now I haven't killed a bunch of geese over flock of flickers, but. I remember when I first got one of those devices in my hand, this little heart-shaped blade-like wing with a little motor on it. I'm like, uh, in the words of Terry Dammit, I do what now? Um, do what now? And go, then, yonder, uh, go yonder. <laughs> Over yonder. Did you see where that was added to the dictionary? I sent I, that to you. I, said, I got your text the other day. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, okay. It's a, now an official word. <laughs> now, some of your videos where you had a bunch of flock flickers out on the ground amid a bunch of other decoys, and I think it was probably shot from the from a drone but oh you got the concept right away when you saw that video any old knows that motion when they see it and that that flashiness it's just kind of a busy motion even though it doesn't look like a duck or something it's just it's it's a trip how are those doing or did guys catch on or did they figure it out or no they didn't catch on but you know we took that product off the market for a year and we're just now getting it back on the market because we had some production issues with it uh it would uh, uh, it, it it would get moisture on the inside of it, and, and they had some production issues with it, and uh, so we took it off, and so we could fix that. So just keep on selling them like they were, and we're about to get it back on the market again. But uh, for years, uh, we would we would notice, we would study actually, uh, you know, what those flickers look like on real ducks, what the little flapping the, all the movements that Chad described a while ago. And uh, if you take ducks that are, say, they landed on in the water or on the dry ground, and there's ducks constantly coming and going, there's ducks constantly on the water, and if you let the light start getting real low, uh, and you can do it by just adding filters on your camera, but anyway, you get down to a low-level um, uh, to a low level uh, uh, scenario there, you can just start seeing these little flashes intermittent random flashes passing around through the flock of ducks, whether they're landing, taking off or on the water. And it always uh, reminded me of being likened to uh, a, a bunch of uh, 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 lightning bugs. You know, you know, you don't have lightning bugs in Colorado, but you're from down south, you know what lightning bugs are. You know, you just, it's just here and there and everywhere. And uh, uh, so that's what got me onto the flock of flicker because I believe and none of this I couldn't ever prove, guys. But I do believe that 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 how ducks how ducks become leery of landing right on top of a spinning wing decoy is it is too much flash. 
when they get close, they recognize it as too much splash, more than a duck can make. Okay, because duck just does a few seconds, you know, and then he quit. Another duck does a few seconds over there. So that's the theory by which I use to design the design the flock of flicker with. Now, on the other side of that coin, the flock of flicker doesn't give off enough flash to uh, to to have the same long range attraction ability that a spin wing decoy has. So, you know, if you were just using flock of flickers, you're gonna give up some of your long range, uh, some of your long range attraction. But in talking to a number of different outfitters that use them extensively, they that all say the same things. So I can tell you one thing, there's no ducks ever scared of one. You know, they, they don't they don't shy off from it at all. You know, and so so you know, what, what does that tell us? That tells us that if you want long range attraction, you're gonna to have to put one or more spinning wing decoys there, even if you can't put them in your killing hole. And then you can use the flock of flickers scattered amongst your decoys to make your decoys look like live ducks, because we we established in the flock of flicker that the movement doesn't have to be in the decoy itself. It can be right by it, and the bird apparently don't pick up on that. You know, so if you got movement in your decoy spread, and you got static decoys in there, the whole thing appears to the to the to the bird to the duck as if that decoy spread is moving and of course you know a, a duck is a, a prey animal and so its eyes are on the side of its head and we're you and i are predator animals and our eyes are in the front so we see we have good depth perception and uh and we see color different than they do they don't have very good depth perception and so uh uh, uh that that causes them problems when they're trying to land and uh, you, you can see it better in geese than in ducks, but you watch these geese flowing overhead and you watch them just turning their head back and forth and back and forth like that. People tell me, uh, people tell me that what they're doing is they're looking at that same object with both eyes by doing that and it gives them some depth perception. Makes perfect sense to me. I believe it, but uh, how, how would you know? You know, I don't know. You know? But, uh, but the little flock of flickers are, you know, a, a great tool, but they make your decoy spread look really natural. They don't have the long range attraction of spinning wing decoy. So, you do have, oh, sorry, well, Skip. Oh, sorry. I just, do you use them on the water too? Uh, the flock of flippers? Mm-hmm. We have a flow. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, down here, you know, we don't dry field hunt uh, in Louisiana. Uh, North Texas dry field hunt. South Texas does not, or rarely. There's snow geese, maybe, or something like that. You know? Ducks just won't. Uh, Ducks won't dry field feed in places like Louisiana, except under unusual conditions. I've seen them do it in ice and snow uh, or something like that, but uh, ordinarily they're not going to do it. And I would have to assume that's because um, given the choice, they'd rather have the food in the water. And there's plenty of food in the water in Louisiana. So you get up to, uh, you know, Alberta, there's no food in that water. So, you know, they do, they just loafing and roosting on the water. They got to go to dry field too. You know. Mr. You get place like Kansas and North Texas, Oklahoma, they got some of both. Mr. Terry, you have product that suits so many needs. September rolls around, you have Mojo Dove, you have Mojo Teal, you have so many different species from Gadwall to Redhead to the Spoonie to the Sprig. Widgeon mallards, hen mallards, remote controls. You have the mini mojos. You can you have goose products. You have the flock of flickers. You move into spring. You have turkey equipment. 
you have predator equipment that you can use all year to practice predator management and call coyotes and different predators in close getting that call up wind of you and let them circle downwind right in front of your gun amazing innovation is there anything new we can expect do you have anything that's going to blow our mind i already showed everybody the front inside cover of the new gear issue we have the coot is there anything else that we can expect mr terry out of mojo this year you think that coot's an okay idea, too? Heck, yeah. I have one of my mentors in duck hunting is Dave Stanley. You guys know John David Stanley. Dave Stanley is his father and the president of our Heritage Duck Club out here in Nevada, the canvas back that Skip needs to come out and do a piece on someday. But we had we did a podcast the other day on scouting um, public waters because we get so many requests from people on how do you, how do you navigate public water and what's so we did preseason scouting summer scouting and then during the season scouting and mid-season scouting all that and one of the things we talked about was color swan decoys canvasback decoys and coots about how when you see mallards or puddle ducks in a relaxed situation there's always coots around you know they're like widgeon they're stealing food from them they're messing around with them but there's always coots in our marshes out here idaho nevada washington oregon california i think it's a great idea then you put the ripple effect with it to where the coots moving because like it says in the ad if something's not right the coots are out of there they're very skittish they're, they'll start walking or swimming and then walking and running across that water. So, yeah, I think it's a great confidence decoy. I think that everybody's going to have to have them. It's just that education process of, like, telling people why, right? Well, I don't shoot coots. Well, that's not why they're in your spread. Okay, that, that's you might not be hunting canvasbacks, but mallards key in on that color from a long ways away mixed with the flash of that spinning wing. It's all about being unorthodox, thinking outside the box. And I think that's why you've been so successful in business is that you're not afraid to take chances on stuff like that. And then you have enough intelligence and wherewithal to be able to educate the consumer and the everyday duck hunter of why you should have coots in your decoy spread. I think overall the coots will, will help any, any duck hunter uh, hunting in water. Uh, uh, you know, how duck hunting is. They go out there the first time, they say, I didn't see they did any good. But uh, overall, they're going to because just as you said, a coot will just not hang around any spot that has anything suspicious going on. So if they take the six of them, they're six in a pack, uh, two rippers, four stags, they'll take them and put them out on the point of their decoys. That's what I would do, just right out on the point of their decoys. Well, those ducks are going to notice them. It's going to make them think that uh, everything's okay. It's going to give them some level of confidence is that going to be enough for them to land them and shoot them? We don't know that. That depends on a lot of other factors. But there is an interesting story that goes with those coots. They really didn't have anything to do with me developing this. But many years ago, I was sitting in a duck line with the famous Phil Robinson. And uh, Phil was philosophizing, as he typically always is, about something. And he's telling me one day, you know, Phil called everybody by the last name. He said, Denver. He said, you know, one year I took, took these, uh, what size is a Coke bottle this big around this big? Two liter. Two liter. What's that? Two liter. Two liter. <laughs> he said, I took two liter Coke bottles and painted them black and with a white ring around their neck, and I put all them on one side of my decoy spread. And then I took regular decoy and I put all them on the right side of my decoy spread. And he said, all the ducks want to land in the Coke bottles. I said, why do you think that is, Phil? And he said, I think they thought it was coots. He just casually said that, you know. I didn't give it much thought at the time, you know, but I started watching after that, you know. you If anything's going on around a duck line or anywhere in the water, then coots are not going to stay there. They're going to leave. If they're there, it's okay. It's a great point. Um, 
So anything else? Is there any secrets? We, uh, or are we going to become better duck hunters from any other tools coming out in the repertoire? Well, we, yeah, we have quite a few tools on the uh, development table. Some of them we've uh, had on it for a couple of years trying to uh, uh, work on issues like sufficient battery life and, and, and the, uh, the, the uh, uh, use of the lithium ion batteries has helped us a lot on that. You can run it with a typical lead acid battery like we use, but they're just too heavy if you have to have a lot of battery power. So there are some, you know, there are some uh, uh, things along that line, things to make your, you know, decoy spread just look more lifelike, you know, more movement, moves the water, move the decoy. Terry, I don't know how many duck seasons that you've gone through. I'm going to say at least, at least 50. I'm going to say you're 65 years old and you probably started hunting when you're 12. So I'm going to say right around 50 duck seasons, somewhere in there. You have visited duck camps all over the continental United States, South America, Canada. You've been to Africa hunting ducks. But does a duck lodge or camp lose credibility if they do not have this magazine sitting on the table in the lodge or the camp headquarters? Do you turn around and leave if you don't see wildfowl in the bathroom or in the lodge somewhere, Terry? Well, most places I don't have the option to turn around and leave, but they certainly <laughs> miss in the boat. I can say that. It's the best. It's the best uh, waterfowl magazine out there, without question. We rank it number one. And you have a great relationship with them. You continue to advertise through them. There's articles that's been written about you in the magazine. What would you say to the young whippersnapper now that might not know what a magazine is? Okay, there are some people out there that don't even know that magazines still exist. Would you tell the duck hunter to get a subscription to Wildfowl? Yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer in you. If you want to be knowledgeable or from our side of the thing, if you want to touch, you know, all the people, you, you know, you got to participate in all of the. Uh, of the uh, popular media today. You got to participate in TV. You got to participate in print. You know, you got to participate in social media because they all do something uh, different for you. And from a mojo perspective, you know, we believe, I believe that, uh, you you know, being associated with uh, a publication like Wildfowl Magazine gives us credibility. That, that's what that's that that's our main interest in it is it gives us credibility we think if we if we're in there uh in just in buying ads from them just you know running those ads you show you know a lot, a lot of eyes are going to see it uh but but also if they, they, they'll write you know write things about us from time to time all that gives us credibility and the credibility then helps you into other media things but you know, I do television. You do television, Skip. Uh, Chad Skip does television, too. Uh, you know, there's, there's only certain things that you can do in television. And you can do things in television that you can't do elsewhere. But they all can do something a little different. In print ad, you know, you can tell people, in print, print uh, magazines, you can tell people things that you can't necessarily tell them in the other medium. So they all do something for you. But, uh, you know, we would never leave Wildfire Magazine. With your outlook right now, and I'll let Skip finish this, is this going to be a great 2021-22 season? Kyle Broussard felt with the droughts in Louisiana that it will be. Chris Cifrio in Arkansas said because of some of the cold fronts early so far, 
It's going to be great. Tony Vandemore, all of our friend here mutually, told us a couple days ago that he's already seeing Blue Wings in Kansas, or in Missouri. He's had a couple cold nights already there. Do you feel, from what you're seeing so far, do you have a guess, or are you just so optimistic you're, you're going to say it's going to be one of the greatest seasons on, on the books, Mr. Terry? Well, I, I certainly think it's going to be a good season. Uh, could be a great season. Uh, uh, you know, people get get their spirits dampened by the fact that uh, uh, the count's down because we don't have a count this year. You know, they didn't count this year. But we know that it is dry among, along a lot of the breeding grounds up there. Uh, that would tend to suggest that we didn't have as good a hatch as we normally do, would do, even though we don't have any statistics on that. And to tell you the truth, I haven't found over my lifetime that that makes a whole lot of difference. It's all about your conditions where you're at and the weather. If the weather, you know, brings the ducks there, uh, then you, you can't really tell that there was fewer ducks hatched up on the breeding ground. So I think it's going to be a I think it's going to be a great year. It's rained a lot across the South. All the way up to Kansas. Uh, I don't. I, I think it's rained up on Tony and them too. I saw something where he was having some blood problems up there earlier in the year. So there's going to be a lot of water on the ground. You know, oftentimes uh, this far down when they start the seasons in October and November, we're still in a dry period. Not a lot of water on the ground down here. But you know, once you get a lot of water on the ground in places like Louisiana, Arkansas. Uh, some parts of Texas, there's just lots of duck, natural duck habitat. Not water that somebody pumped in there for the ducks, but the natural duck habitat and and refuge. It gives them some refuge. Got little place, isolated places around that people don't know about. They don't hunt. They give the duck can find. Gives them refuge, some safe escape to go to. I think it's going to be a great year. Awesome. Very well said. Such awesome knowledge being dropped by the great Terry Demon. He's a member. Of the Outdoor Hall of Fame. Is that in Memphis or Nashville? Well, it's it's uh, it's, in, it's headquartered in Nashville. I do believe that they're having their uh, their annual banquet this year at the Pyramid in uh, Memphis. Memphis. Okay, that's what I heard. Skip, you've known Terry as long, if not longer, than I have. Um, I don't know how to end it, Skip, other than... We could pay homage to the man for what he means to duck hunting and what he's done to the success rate of duck hunting. Um, how do you want to end it, Skip? Do you want to tell your favorite mojo story, or do you want to sing him a song? Uh, Terry, Terry's favorite, um, uh, he has so many good Skip stories, like when I shot a black wolf out from under him in Alberta. But he probably loves that story about me uh, hanging outside the um, – the Bucky's, that giant convenience store in Texas, we're all pumped up to go to Steve Biggers. The first time I'm down there to kill ducks, I had no idea about what else was going on, but there were people everywhere wearing camouflage. And this, the, I'll let Terry finish his story. <laughs> Actually, Skip killed mad at me because I wouldn't give him enough shotgun shells when he and I were shooting cows in, in Mexico that time, and the cows were coming like crazy. And uh, Skip just had a three-inch shotgun, and most of my shells were three and a half. And so <laughs> I was rationing him out of shells, and uh, he's been mad ever since then. Well, you remember, you remember me saying to that woman who got in a suburban with her kids, um, so what's going on? Is it is it the dove opener or something? And she looked at me, and Terry just shaking his head. And she looked at me and said, no, you ain't from around here, are you? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I saw, I was down in Georgia and Alabama uh, the last 
couple months um, doing some dog stuff, and it was turkey season actually. But there's they're building buckies in Florida and Alabama and Georgia now. Wow, we're gonna build the biggest buckies, the biggest convenience store in the world out of Knoxville, Tennessee, seventy-five thousand square feet. A Bucky's. It'll be the largest convenience store in the world for the article that was published about it. 75,000 square feet. Buckies is a happening, you know. The first time I ever went hunting was Steve Biggers. And I'd been to Elk Campo, I guess. I don't really remember. So I asked him, I said, well, where where do you want me to come to? He said, well, come to Buckets. What's Buckets? So you don't know what Buckets is? Never heard of one. <laughs> yeah, they were only in Texas for a long time. Right? Yeah. He said, well, come to El Campo and come to Buckets, and I'll meet you there. That's all he ever told me. I love it. Yeah, you got you to get down there with Biggers if you haven't. I'll leave it at that. I agree with Terry. It's going to be an amazing season. I think uh, the drought that's strangling the northern the pothole prairie region definitely is going to hurt us, but also a lot less ducks were killed last year. Also, I'm with him in that how I do on my hunts has a lot more to do with how the low, the weather is here for me, the weather, you know, we had record duck counts eight years ago, six years ago, million, 45 million in the fly. I think 9 million blue and teal. It doesn't matter unless the weather treats you right. So just pray for cold, be optimistic. And, and you definitely need to get down there uh, on and crash one of his bigger hunts. That's the first time walking around those dikes in the pre-dawn was the first time I'd heard jet engine or <laughs> this noise. I'm like, what the hell is that? Terry looks at me and goes, that's ducks. And he had, he had 10,000 people in that place. And it was a jet engine or just insanity. I freaking love it. I love duck hunting. And I'm going to tell you this, 2021, 22 season, think outside the box, learn how to adapt, figure out what's going to bring consistency and success, comfort, get your kids involved, new blood in the pipeline. We need it. There's like 4 million turkey hunters in America, 13 and a half to 15 million deer hunters. I don't know the number, but it's somewhere in there. Duck hunters is probably 1.75 to two and a half million, somewhere in there. It's hard. It's difficult. It's a lot of challenges. It's expensive. It's an investment in your time, your knowledge, your ability to learn, your ability to adapt. It does take a lot of money to buy the stuff that we need, but the stuff that we have today, it lasts. We're living in the golden age, in my opinion. Mr. Terry mentioned innovation and not just decoys and mojo and spinning wings or flash decoys. We're talking clothes that you can stay out forever and stay dry and warm and comfortable and guns that won't let you down and ammo that performs ethically in the harvest shot. We are living in the golden age of duck hunting. So let's get out, stay optimistic. And what Terry said hit me, and we're going to end today's episode like this. Let's not beat each other up. I give my good buddy Chad Mendez crap all the time because he hunts turkeys with a bow. And I feel personally that turkeys are one animal that were put on God's great earth to be harvested with a shotgun. I don't know why I feel that way, but I've asked a lot of my Southern brothers and sisters where turkey hunting is a religion, the same question, and they all seem to agree with me for some reason, but that still doesn't give me the right to question Chad's reasoning for hunting turkeys with a bow. Some people don't believe in the, the fanning of the turkey and getting behind it and reaping a turkey, and Mojo has been prolific in this. To each their own, if it's legal, Let's stay behind it and support it and not beat each other up. We understand that social media has the ability to make everybody look like they're living their best life, that every hunt was the best, that every pile picture was 17 days in a row. We all know that it wasn't. We know what tricks can be played and the wool that can be pulled over eyes with social media. Let's just stay humble. 
Let's know that this is a privilege to hunt, that God, the man upstairs has given this to us. And it's our responsibility to fly the flag, be good stewards of the land, respect the resource, have compassion for the animals and put the earth back on the shelf, ready for the next generation to use it better than when we found it. That's why it's important to support conservation. Like Skip alluded to that Mr. Terry's done for so many years, California waterfowl, Safari Club, Louisiana Department of Wildlife, you name it. There's ways to get involved. Delta waterfowl, Ducks Unlimited, become involved, sweat equity, elbow grease, work for the ducks, work for the sheep, work for the elk, work Work for the turkeys, and we will all be able to see our sport, our livelihood, this culture of the American hunter thrive for many generations to come. Terry Demon, you are a legend. Skip Knowles, you are becoming a legend slowly but surely. I love reading what you write. This has been another episode of the Foul Life Podcast 2021 Wild Fowl Magazine Giant Gear issue brought to you by our friends at Wild Fowl and Mojo, Monroe, Louisiana. Down there where the ducks fly constantly. I can't remember the last time I hunted in Louisiana, but it's been at least two or three years with Drew Keith and the people, the great people of Honey Break. I can't wait to get back down there. I want to get some gumbo and gator. I want to chase ducks with Mr. Terry. Chuck, hello. Marty, hello. Hello, Stevie. Everybody at Mojo, thank you all for tuning in. Tom, Jake, hit that button. This is 2AM Logic. The song is called My Foul Life. <laughs> 